Welcome to SCOTUS Cast, ERISA and Church Plan Exemptions Edition. Thank you for tuning in. On March 27, 2017, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in Advocate Healthcare Network v. Stapleton, which is consolidated with St. Peter's Healthcare System v. Kaplan and Dignity Health v. Rollins. The Employment Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 requires that employee retirement plans contain certain safeguards, but exempts church plans from these requirements. Under 29 U.S.C. 1233a, the term church plan means a plan established and maintained by a church or by a convention or association of churches, which is exempt from tax, after a controversy involving an internal revenue service determination that the church plan exemption did not encompass pension plans established and maintained by two orders of Catholic sisters for the employees of their hospitals, Congress amended the statute to add subsection C, which provides a plan established and maintained for its employees or their beneficiaries by a church or by a convention or association of churches includes a plan maintained by an organization, whether a civil law corporation or otherwise, the principal purpose or function of which is the administration or funding of a plan or program for the provision of retirement benefits or welfare benefits, or both, for the employees of a church or a convention or association of churches, if such organization is controlled by or associated with a church or a convention or association of churches. Plaintiffs in this case are a group of employees who work for Advocate Healthcare Network and are members of Advocate's retirement plan. Advocate is affiliated with the church, though it is not owned or financially operated by the church. Plaintiffs sued Advocate, arguing that the Advocate retirement plan is subject to ERISA, and therefore, by failing to adhere to ERISA's requirements, Advocate has breached its fiduciary duty. Defendants moved for summary judgment, but the district court denied the motion because it determined that a plan established and maintained by a church-affiliated organization was not a church plan within the meaning of the statutory language. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit affirmed. The question now before the Supreme Court is whether the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974's church plan exemption applies so long as a pension plan is maintained by an otherwise qualifying church-affiliated organization, or whether the exemption applies only if, in addition, a church initially established the plan. To discuss the case, we have Eric Baxter, who is senior counsel of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. And now, Mr. Baxter. It's a bit of a sleeper case. Um, the name of the case is Advocate Health versus Stapleton. It is an ERISA case um, involving the interpretation of church plans under ERISA. It's been a bit of a sleeper case. Uh, ERISA is not exactly known for attracting large crowds. And in fact, um, it was paired on Monday at the Supreme Court with a patent venue case, uh, so I assume that there might not be a lot of people in the lawyer's line to get in, and went a little later than I had originally anticipated and was lucky to make it in. It turned out that uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in this case, and I think it's because it involves significant issues about defining a church under the law, and in this specific case, there are also enormous consequences and potentially billions of dollars in damages that could go to the class action plaintiffs who initiated the cases um, in the district court. So I hope today that my remarks will shed some light on the case and, um, and that I will be able to share some of the more entertaining aspects of the case um, in, the, in the process. Churches were some of the first organizations in the United States to provide pension plans for their employees. And so when Congress enacted ERISA and its comprehensive regulatory scheme of pension plans in 1974, it intentionally left church plans out, perhaps out of respect for the strong record of church plans 
in providing benefits um, that were well-funded and that through today continue to be um, better benefits and better funded than the industry standard. And also, I think, to avoid the entanglement that would be obvious if the government were trying to regulate the church's internal affairs of how it uh, paid its employees. As originally enacted, um, the exemption, the church plan exemption in um, what I'll refer to as subsection A of the relevant provision defined a church as a plan, a church plan as a plan that is both established and maintained uh, for the employees of a nonprofit church or convention of churches. And that phrase, established and maintained, um, is really what's at issue in this case. A separate provision, subsection C, provided that existing plans that were established and maintained by a church could continue to cover both church employees and employees of church agencies like hospitals, at least until 1982. So there were many plans, churches that had hospitals or other agent mission boards, other independent agencies um, that were, whose employees were covered under the church plan, and Congress said they would allow that through 1982. About three years after ERISA's enactment in 1977, the IRS issued an opinion letter um, to a, two orders of Catholic sisters who had approached the IRS to confirm that their hospital pension plans were church plans under the law. And the IRS ruled against them, holding that because their principal activity was operating hospitals and not performing sacerdotal functions or conducting worship, um, that they did not qualify as a church. The IRS recognized that they did perform some sacraments, they engaged in scripture readings and prayers with their patients, but held that that was not sufficient to qualify them as a what the IRS considered a true church. This caused fairly widespread consternation among the religious community. They objected uh, to the IRS, assuming that it could define what and what is not a part of a church. Uh, for most churches, practicing what they preach is at least equally important to what they um, preach on the weekends. And so there was concern that the IRS would, would be saying that nuns were not part of the church, but a Catholic bishop was. It also triggered a new concern that hadn't really... Um, seen a lot of attention to that point that um, this idea of established and maintained by a church might be a problem for conventions of churches especially or other groups that um, created separate pension boards that were independent from the church, uh, independently incorporated but still controlled by the church to um, run to run their pension plans. And so there was concern that if these pension boards... It, whether these pension boards would constitute being established by the church. So it's important to understand the different ways that church plans could be operated. A church could itself establish and maintain internally a plan. It could, as I mentioned, um, set up an external pension board that would establish and maintain the plan. Or it sometimes would establish a plan internally and then transfer it to the pension board to run um, the plan and carry out the operations over the course of the rest of the plan's existence. So those two concerns, this concern that you know, IRS is trying to tell who, who tell the churches who belongs to the church and who doesn't, and then this concern that pension boards might not be covered um, the, if you read the plan, the language literally caused a lot of consternation and, and the number of denominations representing you know millions of members approached Congress and said we need a fix. And so in 1980, 
And the, and the IRS letter, IRS was also aware that there was a problem. It was likely concerned about this role that it had then in defining churches, at least the way it read the statute. And so in 1980, Congress, in response to all of that, passed the Multi-Employer Pension Plan Amendments Act, which recognized that church agencies are essential to church's mission and who they are, and that ERISA, the church plan exemption as originally written, was too narrowly drawn and did not really cover the actual way that church plans were organized and operated in the real world. So the amended law left the original subsection A in place, that a church plan is a plan established and maintained by a nonprofit church. It amended subsection C and eliminated the sunset provision that said you could cover church agency employees only until 1982 and replaced it with a much broader um, provision. And it did that by saying that the original plans, plans established and maintained by a church, would include a plan maintained by an organization the principal purpose of which was to run a pension plan. These were called principal purpose organizations. As long as those independent boards, those pension boards, were controlled by or associated with the church, meaning that they have share common religious bonds and convictions. There were also additional provisions added that said that employees of churches would include employees of any organization that was shared these common religious bonds and convictions, and that the church, in turn, would be deemed the employee of those employees. So there was kind of a both ways. The employees would be, even though they're employees of a hospital, as long as that hospital had common religious bonds and convictions with the church, they would be considered employees of the church, and the church would be considered their employer. So this language, to my mind, pretty clearly established um, that religious hospitals and other religious agencies were entitled to use church plans to provide benefits to their employees. And that's clear if you think about the three main ways that those plans were established and maintained. It's clear that plans established and maintained by a house of worship or a traditional church were still clearly covered, whether they had an internal pension board or an external pension board. That was clear from the effort to get rid of the 1982 sunset provision. It's also clear that a house of worship or traditional church, if it established a plan but then turned it over to its agency, or let's say that the agency, the hospital, or whatever it would be, later spun off as a separate entity, it's clear that those are also covered, um, even if it's those plans just cover agency employees because the plan was established by a church, and the law says that plans established and maintained by a church include plans maintained by these pension boards. And that's often what happens, that you have these pension boards that are spun off or they're independently maintaining the plans. The problem in this case was where um, is what happens if the church agency, the hospital, itself directly established and maintained, and the church as a separate entity, the house of worship, was never really involved. And that's what happened with the nuns in 1997 who had formed the church, created the pension plan, and maintained it all throughout its existence, that was really the question where the IRS denied it. The, the class action lawyers in this case have seized upon the amended language um, to say that there still is a church establishment requirement, that the language established and maintained by a church includes plans maintained by a pension board, excludes plans that were established by a pension board. 
So they would say it's okay for a church to establish the plan and turn it over, but not for the pension boards to establish the plan themselves from the beginning. To support this argument, they used a couple of hypotheticals. One, they would say, well, if you had a statute that gave benefits to someone who was disabled and a veteran, and it was amended to say disabled and you know someone who is disabled and a veteran includes a member of the National Guard, you wouldn't say that every member who, of the National Guard gets the benefits. They would still have to show disability. Or if you said you know, eligibility for president, you have to be 35 and be a natural-born citizen. And it was amended to say that a natural-born citizen, someone who's 35 and a natural-born citizen includes someone born abroad on a U.S. military base to parents who are citizens. That wouldn't eliminate the age requirement. They also argued um, that allowing, that under the religious hospitals reading, churches can directly establish and maintain their plans, but agencies cannot because they have to use a pension board. Um, the plan says that only if there's a pension board running it. So you could have a church that establishes and maintains internally, but agencies are required to do it through a board, and they see that as some kind of an anomaly that Congress couldn't have intended. And finally, they argued that the main purpose was to avoid going through the church's books and records, um, and so there shouldn't be, they wouldn't have been concerned about regulating agencies who don't have the same, um, they argued, wouldn't have the same right to keep the government out of their books and records. But the religious hospital's responses to those questions really uh, seemed rather devastating. Um, they pointed out that the phrase elected and, uh, or established and maintained Established really has no independent meaning. There's nothing in the statute that says what it means to establish a plan, that maintaining is where the work is really done. The organization maintaining it has the obligation to fund it, to make sure the payments are made properly and timely, has the fiduciary obligations. And so the establishment requirement has really no independent significance. So it would be like saying that if, you know, the phrase in the Constitution that to be someone elected to and served in the Senate includes a person, if you added it to say includes a person who served in the House, you wouldn't say that the elected to the Senate provision had independent meaning. It's clearly just trying to substitute in all these plans to receive all the same benefits that the originally protected plans um, received. And the hospitals also pointed out that the anomalies under the class actions reading are much more, um, much more problematic. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're forcing hospitals and administrators to fund their plans or to run their plans through a board instead of internally because that's what happens anyway. Everyone always establishes some kind of a pension board um, to run the plans. They, it's usually not the bishop or the head of the organization that's there making the decisions. There's an independent entity set up to run these. So while there may be a gap in the in that reading of in the religious hospitals reading of the law, it's a gap that has no real world significance. Um, and so it, it really shouldn't, it's easy to see how it might have slipped through Congress's thinking. But if you adopted the classes reading, the anomalies are much greater. It doesn't make sense, for example, why you would let a church establish a plan and then pass it off to an agency like a hospital, but not let the agency just establish it in the first place, since establishing has no real independent significance. And everyone agrees that hospitals that have a plan established by a church but maintained by the hospital can cover just hospital employees. And so there's no reason why you would, you know, if you can, if hospitals can cover just for their employees and maintain those plans under a church plan, why do you care whether the church stepped in in the first place? And then the biggest problem what is that the the 
class action lawyer's reading of the plan would have left out a major group that Congress was clearly trying to protect, and that is um, conventions of churches um, that joined together to create plans and so set up separate independent boards to run those plans. And those were in place from the very beginning and was one of the main concerns uh, that prompted the amendment to the law. And the class didn't really have an answer to how they would respond to that. There were uh, the justices were very engaged. There were a lot of questions on both sides. Um, ultimately, I felt like the church uh, plans, the religious hospitals, held the upper hand, even with uh, some of the justices who were more skeptical. Sotomayor, for example, the beginning questioned how these hospitals that are, you know, she said, aren't they very similar to a for-profit hospital? They, um, you know, they're some of the, one of them is the fifth largest medical care provider in the country. They're competing against for-profit entities. Why should they be exempt? And that question is still actually live in the lower courts because there is the requirement that the agency has to have a common religious bond or conviction with the church, and that has not been resolved in any of the cases. Um, and Sotomayor later seemed to be swayed by this idea that you know, if the nuns went in in 1977 and were denied a church plan by the IRS, all of the churches and the IRS went to Congress and said, "How do we? You know, you have to fix this." Congress amended the law, and the next thing that happened was the IRS turned around and the very first letter it granted a, a church plan to was these same uh, two groups of nuns. And Sotomayor seemed persuaded that it's you know that that's. She said, you know, isn't that obvious that IRS understood this and that would have been a good indication of what Congress intended so quickly after this happened? And um, the lawyer for the class said, you know, I can't deny that that's how they interpreted it. And the fact is that's been going on for 37 years since, since then, that three agencies, IRS, Department of Labor, and the Public Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which insures pension plans under ERISA, all of those agencies for nearly 40 years have been interpreted the same way as the IRS. And so there was a lot of question about why they shouldn't um, give deference to the agencies. There was also a great line of questioning when Alito pounced on uh, the attorney for the lawyers for the class and said, you know, aren't, isn't this going to create tremendous liability, 30 years of reliance, and now you're asking for, you know, what the hospitals have said is $60 billion in fees just from the plaintiffs in the case. And the attorney arguing for the class really stumbled at this point and said, um, you know, this is really a forward-looking case. We're just trying to make sure that employees get their benefits when they're supposed to get them. We're not really looking at fees. And Alito said, well, is it true or not that there are billions of dollars in penalties alleged in the complaint? The attorney said, well, we don't actually name a figure. Alito said, well, if you add it up, what would it be? And, the, you know, the attorney kind of stumbled again and then um, – so Alito just said, well, are you willing on behalf of your clients to disavow any request for penalties? And the attorney said, no, I'm not. And the courtroom just erupted in laughter because everyone could see that, you know, the class action is obviously there to get fees and to argue they're really just in this to make sure that there's future benefits um, for employees is, was really laughable. And there were instances with the other justices. I've spoken my 15 minutes, but I'm happy to answer questions about the other justices' reaction. But overall, I felt like the religious hospitals really laid out a clear case, not only on the statutory construction, but on deference to the agencies and the reliance that for 40 years everyone has thought that this ERISA never applied to these plans, and it would create enormous disruption to go back on that now.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Scotus Cast. For more episodes of Scotus Cast, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.fedsoc.org/multimedia.